Good morning again, church. If you have your Bibles, please turn in them to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5, as you're turning there, I'll make note that, as many of you know, today is Father's Day. Um, the elders at Christ the King do not see command in the Scriptures to celebrate during the worship hour the holidays of governments and of men, nor do we think that it is wise to take our attention off of the text and off of Christ to give time to that. However, this morning I will be preaching a text on elders and men who are called to be elders. So in many ways this will touch themes connected to fatherhood and rulership over families and homes, um, but that is by God's providence that we are in this passage and by no means intentional. So, having made note of that, I will read this morning's text. We're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 5, the first four verses. And just to give a little bit of context, I'm actually going to back up into chapter 4 and begin with verse 17. I'll read those verses, and then we will pray and ask God's blessing on our time this morning. 1 Peter, beginning in chapter 4, verse 17, remembering that these are the words of the Lord. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So, or therefore, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Let's pray. Father, we come into your presence this morning, asking your favor again on this time. We ask that you would open our minds to the word that as we hear, as I preach, the Spirit would make this profitable for all of us and that it would bring blessing and glory and honor and praise to the name of Jesus. I pray that as we think about shepherds, you would turn our eyes and our minds towards the chief shepherd and to remember his work for all of us. It is in his name that we ask these things. Amen. Well, I ask you this morning, have you ever heard of the normalcy bias? It is a cognitive <laughs> Amen. It is a cognitive fallacy where a person assumes that things have always been a certain way and therefore they will always be that way. You've for example heard people say, "We will never run out of toilet paper in America because Costco always has toilet paper." Well, uh, 2020 
did expose the American normalcy bias. My question this morning to you is, does the church of Jesus Christ suffer from a normalcy bias? Imagine for just a minute coming to church without the assurance that every covenant member here would have made it safely through the week. Let's say that one of the women this morning had hopes of finishing her discussion with sister so-and-so about the benefits of a 10-quart instant pot. But this morning, you find out that two days ago, she and her family were arrested and put in prison. Why? Because they are Christians. What about that brother in Christ who is a gifted evangelist and refused to curb his speech during Pride Month and was taken away for reparative therapy? But you find out later that he was actually burned alive. What if that new couple who had just professed their faith in Christ through Christian baptism showed up at church in a wreck? He almost had to be carried in because he had been beaten by a mob which was decorated in full genital costume revelry and she, showing a downcast face, in trying to come to his aid was assaulted and molested. It's hard to fathom, isn't it? It's our normalcy bias. Now imagine that you were an elder of a church where what is normal is not freedom and safety, but rather persecution. And the hope of relief seems about as plausible as a 0% humidity day in the East Tennessee Valley. It's not likely. This is typical for churches all around the world, but not for us, not in the West. How could anybody want to take that leadership job where you knew any given Sunday somebody could walk in with some real, real difficulty going on in their lives. Well, Peter says that judgment begins with the household of God. And I mentioned last week that, according to Ezekiel, that starts at the top. Peter turns his words of encouragement to the leaders of the church of Jesus Christ, offering them resolve in their days of difficulty. Let's look at chapter 5, verse 1. Peter says, I exhort the elders among you. That word parakaleo, Greek, means exhortation. He's exhorting the elders of the churches in the dispersion in the region what is now known as Turkey. This word literally means to call to one side or to bring alongside. So it makes sense that Peter would say, Hey guys, I'm a fellow elder. I'm a fellow elder. But don't miss this, church. The Apostle Peter, one of Jesus' 12 disciples, and one of the three included in Jesus' inner circle, is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit what will become one of the letters collected into God's holy word for all ages in an effort to encourage them during intense persecution. And Peter doesn't pull rank. He doesn't pull rank. He doesn't do the Barney Fife where he, you know, point, 
Look at the badge. I'm an apostle. See the name tag? The Christian elder stands above the sheep, but he stands above the sheep in order to lift up the sheep, not to keep them down. He stands on a platform to exalt Christ, not himself. His rank is to be used as a surgical tool to keep and sustain life, not as a murder weapon to destroy it. One of the greatest comedy skits, and one I know many of you are familiar with, I think of all time, has to be Brian Regan's bit on the me monster. He describes a dinner party where every participant wants the discussion to center around, you guessed it, (laughs) me. They spend all their time trying to outdo one another with their tales of adventure and the things that they own and where they work. And Brian admits that in those moments, he gets a little irritated. He wishes that he had been one of the 12 astronauts that at some point in modern history has had an opportunity to land on the moon. Because you can just sit back at the party and wait for everybody to throw out their best. And then at the end, you input, I walked on the moon. If you haven't seen it, go watch it. It's pretty funny. I'd say walking as one of Jesus' three closest followers is more significant than even walking on the moon. But Peter doesn't go there. Remember, judgment begins with the house of God. Who were the first to be persecuted and experience the trial of Christian persecution? That was the apostles. They were. They received this judgment not just because they were at the top of the org chart, but they had committed high treason and broken the covenant by burning incense. This is, I'm sorry, in Ezekiel chapter 9, the elders who had received the judgment of God had committed high treason and broken the covenant by burning incense to drawings of unclean things on the very walls of the temple. And where does that come from? It comes from high-handed pride. Just a brief point of application. The Christian pastor must be clothed with humility and love. Pride is the greatest enemy to God's under-shepherds. It will lead them, and ultimately the flock, into more and more ungodliness. Brothers, if you see pride in your elders, you should, as men, address it. I'm not saying that you should nitpick every word that we say, But you should be close enough to us that if a sin pattern develops, you can address it with at least one other witness, biblically and in love. And I'll speak more on this to come. But in addition to not tapping his badge like Barney Fife, Peter tells his fellow elders that he is a witness to the sufferings of Christ. He could mean two different things here. He could mean that he was actually a witness to the sufferings, the persecution of Christ in his last hours. Now, the thing about this is we don't actually know how much of Christ's last sufferings in his final hours Peter was a witness to. You remember that he was only admitted entrance to um, the outer court where there was a fire burning and the persecution that was happening to Jesus between he and the religious leaders was taking place inside. And before the rooster crowed, twice he had denied Jesus three times, and the Bible says he went away and wept bitterly. By the way, it shouldn't upset anybody's faith 
um, that it's, some of the apostles might not have been present at every minute of the crucifixion. Um, if you're in Christ, you're also a believer in an event that you have not been an eyewitness to. What I think he's most likely referring to is his own sufferings on behalf of his faith in Christ. His own sufferings on behalf of his faith in Christ. John Calvin summarizes this well. Calvin says, It avails much that Peter gave a proof of his faith by enduring his own cross or suffering. For it hence appears evident that he spoke in earnest and the Lord, by thus proving his people, seals as it were their ministry that it might have more honor and reverence among men. He does this through suffering. Peter then, Calvin continues, had probably this in view so that he might be heard as the faithful minister of Christ, a proof of which he gave in the persecutions that he had suffered and in the hope which he had of future life. Brothers, this is not in any way to take away from the glories of Jesus and His sufferings. He alone worked salvation for His people. His sufferings and His resurrection are alone effective for His people. But it does seem to fit the context and the flow of the passage that Peter speak of his own sufferings. In relating to the elders who are the first to receive the judgment in the house of God, as a fellow elder, he also identifies with their sufferings. He's saying, guys, I've got skin in the game too. I've been there. What Christ suffered, I've also been a participant of. You see, this is the coming alongside that parakaleo. We're all in this together. Everybody's suffering and dealing with these hardships. He's not off in some ivory palace in Rome pontificating about climate change and ensuring his cardinals get out of their sex scandals. The next verse confirms this. He says, Not only am I a witness to the sufferings of Christ, but I am as well a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. This is the whole theme of the letter of 1 Peter. Suffering... In faithfulness leading to glory. Suffering in faithfulness that leads to glory. 1 Peter 4.19, it is the summary verse of the entire letter. Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Peter is saying that he's right there with them, taking the hits and looking forward to the glory days. Another brief point of application. Church, elders have to have skin in the game. Your elders should exemplify skin in the game when it comes to everything that the sheep are struggling with, including Christian persecution. The church must evangelize, and the elders are called to show them how. The church should be hospitable, and that's one of the qualifications of an elder. We're even required as elders to submit to other elders. That's the plurality of elders, part of our purpose. Jeremy and Daniel are my elders, and if they come to me with an exhortation or an admonishment or even a rebuke, I don't get to look at them and say, no, I don't think so. I don't get to say that. They're my elders. If Peter's readers are being encouraged to suffer for Christ, they should be able to look at their elders. At this point, the elders should be able to look at Peter 
and see how to do that well. That's exactly why he's saying, guys, I'm coming alongside of you. I'm right here with you. By the way, they should also see the joy that comes from our hope in the future. We know where this is all headed. We know where it's going. And so the elder ought to be a man who is not clothed with sorrow, but with jubilation, with joy. Now, I want to take a brief moment this morning to make a theological point. We've had a number of guests recently and a number of people who have joined our church, all from different church backgrounds. And so I want to take some time to outline from this passage in 1 Peter 5, I think it's one of the best passages to take a moment to do this, what an elder actually does. We're not speaking of qualifications. We spoke of those months ago as we were preparing to nominate and elect deacons and Daniel as an elder. We're talking about functions this morning. How does an elder function? What should you expect from your elders? What responsibilities do we have for the sake of the church of Jesus Christ? This also lands on a providential moment in the life of the church because as many of you have been following the Southern Baptist Convention this last week, we have another third way center-left leader that was elected and ideas at the convention about women pastors were again promoted. We live in a world where one of the most historically conservative groups has gone woke and doesn't have the backbone to tell a woman that she can't preach, that it is not her job to do so. Catholic thinker Anthony Esselin has more insight and wisdom than the Southern Baptist Convention. He says, a little tongue-in-cheek, we do not produce many comedians in the present. We are producing a lot of material for comedians in the future. I think he's right. What is an elder? Is an elder a pastor and or also a shepherd? What is a bishop? Where does that word even come from? Do bishops have oversight of a church or a group of churches? Are these three different offices, elder, pastor, bishop, or are they all the same office. These are questions of ecclesiology. That is a big word which basically means the governance of the church. Ecclesia is the Greek word for church. And I'm going to argue briefly this morning that it is the teaching of Jesus and his apostles that church leadership is fundamentally a two-tier system. A two-tier system, that being the system that we currently practice at Christ the King, elders and deacons. Elders and deacons. Acts chapter 20 says, From Miletus he sent to Ephesus, this is Paul, and called the elders of the church to come to him. Okay, Paul calls the elders of the church to come to him. He says to them, Pay careful attentions to yourselves, and to all of the flock, the elders have charge over the flock, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Greek word is episkopos. That's where the word bishop comes from. We'll get to that later. You see that Paul has elders who are shepherding the flock, who are overseers. Titus chapter 1. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town. A few verses later, for an overseer as God's steward 
must be above reproach. Elders are overseers. In Hebrews chapter 13, again, the apostle says, Obey your leaders and submit to them as those who keep watch over your souls. An elder, a leader, is an overseer. And in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 to 2, all three offices are present and used to describe the same office. As an elder, I exhort the elders, shepherd the flock of God, exercising oversight. All three offices. The same idea. He's talking about one office that's described in three different ways. This was practiced in churches from the days of Christ into the 3rd century A.D. Clement of Rome, who served as an elder from 88 to 99 A.D., wrote a letter to the fledgling Corinthian church exhorting them to submit to the leadership of their elders. He actually wrote two letters, and the second one, the Corinthian church had gotten so fed up with their elders, they actually kicked their elders out of the church, and they went to this whole, the Spirit's just going to lead our church, and then the church ended up falling apart. Calling on the Septuagint version of Isaiah 60, Clement of Rome says, Appoint bishops in righteousness and deacons in faith. He saw this as the two-tiered system of the church. I've mentioned the Didache before. Didache is a Greek word for teaching. And it was an early Christian pamphlet, if you can imagine, um, explaining what do you do now that you're a Christian. You don't go to Lifeway and get a Bible because there were none. So they handed you this small piece of paper that had some instructions on what a Christian was and what he was to do. The Didache says, appoint for yourselves bishops, that's the word for overseer, and deacons worthy of the Lord. The earliest Christian writings in the New Testament and post-New Testament. We have a two-tiered system. So you're asking the question, Chris, if it's that plain, why did it change over time? It often happens in the church of Jesus, heresy erupts, and a heresy that began to assault the church in the early days of the church called docetism, and this challenged the humanity of Christ. Docetism is a word that means to seem, and it teaches that Christ was divine, but not human. He seemed to be human. He looked like he was human, but he wasn't really fully man. Now, there's a problem, as I'm sure you know. No body, no blood. And no blood, no atonement. Big problem. In response to this, Ignatius of Antioch, also an elder, fought back by affirming both Christ's deity and his humanity, helping to formulate what would become one of the early creeds of the church, the Chalcedonian Creed, which says that by Christ is both fully God and fully man. In addition to this, and to protect the church, he proposed that there be more oversight of the church. And so he suggested a three-tiered ecclesiology. He divided elder and overseer from one another. So there would be elders over the church, and then there would be overseers or bishops over a group of churches. Each individual Christian 
would go to a local church parish, but then they would have one bishop which was responsible for them. And if there were any questions or heresies that arose in the church, the bishop was responsible for those groups of churches and those individuals. Now, I'm not saying in mentioning this, by the way, this is where the whole Roman Catholic system developed from. This is where they get their idea of the hierarchical structure of ecclesiology in the Roman Catholic Church. I'm not saying that oversight of a church is not warranted. You know that the apostles performed this function early on in the church and when it was necessary. Many of our members and visitors ask if we are considering being part of a larger association. And though connection to a broader network isn't appealing to your elders at this point, we are considering looser associations of local churches that can work together in our context here in Anderson County. But, and this is the big question, who was Peter writing to? Not to a regional church leader, not to a council over several smaller parishes, and certainly not to anybody who would call themselves the vicar of Christ on earth. He was writing as an elder to elders whom the Bible describes as having the responsibility of shepherding and overseeing the flock. Let me just give a a brief definition of elders, shepherds, overseers for you this morning. Elders is the Greek word presbyteros. And this comes from a shorter Greek word, presbus, which means elderly. This is not about age, though. It is about a person's virtue, which would naturally develop with age. Again, John Calvin. They called them elders for honor's sake, not because they were all old in age, but because they were principally chosen from the aged, for old age, for the most part, has more prudence, gravity, and experience. There's an old Greek proverb that says, hoariness is not wisdom. By the way, hoariness is a word for gray or white hair. Hoariness is not wisdom. This term, elder, is meant to highlight two things, rank and wisdom. Rank and and wisdom. The elder holds a real office, an office instituted by Christ, an office that exercises real authority with God-given wisdom. Yes, there are limits to an elder's authority, and I'll get to some of those here in just a minute. But let me say this. This must be said emphatically in our democratic, egalitarian, Everybody's on the same plane. Culture. God gave elders an office that does exercise ruling power. He gave elders an office that, and they do exercise ruling power. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. In 1 Thessalonians 5, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and esteem them very highly in love because of their work. In Hebrews 13, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Jeremy and Daniel and I have had to answer questions already about what kind of authority we as elders actually have, how much of it we have, and how and when we can apply it. 
Some people in our culture today take the Jesus is my only shepherd approach. This is a soft egalitarian idea and it denies any rank in the church at all. Well, we're not supposed to call anyone father, Chris. After all, we're all brothers and sisters. It sounds right, but it denies the plain reading of the text having to do with the elder and his responsibility to rule. Jesus Christ loved his bride so much that when he went to prepare a place for her, he did not leave her without a guardian and a steward. This is why Peter was encouraging the elders in this church to stick with it. Their role was invaluable. They were essential to the mission to prepare the bride of Jesus for the coming day of glory. Fatherless homes produce loose women and pastorless churches produce a loose bride of Christ. Just a point of application as I conclude speaking about elders. I would encourage you to thank God for His idea of and the gift of elders of godly Christian leadership. This isn't meant to be an attaboy for myself or Jeremy or Daniel. It's not. God has gifted you, church, with an office of men who keep watch over what no one else is to keep watch over, your soul, to provide and care for your soul. Look at the second term. Peter says, shepherd the flock of God. Let's talk about the shepherd. This is the Greek word poimen, which simply means a shepherd, someone who shepherds sheep. Elders don't just rule, they also work. And, you know, as many of you have likely already thought, Jesus shows us how. Jesus shows us how. In John chapter 10, we see that the shepherd leads his sheep. John chapter 10, verses 3 and 4. The sheep hear His voice, and He calls His own sheep by name and leads them out. When He has brought out all His own, He goes before them, and the sheep follow Him. Daniel and Jeremy and I are charged by God to get out in front of the sheep. That may look attractive. Well, I want to be a leader. I want to be the one who's out front. But we, as leaders, are required, and Peter says here in just a, another verse or two, to set the example for the sheep. We are often misunderstood, and we're the first to get attacked. Lastly, we will stand before the judgment bar of God and have to give an account for our ministry. Shepherding is not a light matter. In addition, the shepherd not only leads the sheep, but he feeds the sheep. Today, American churches are full of shepherds who feed themselves by siphoning tithe money, like Judas, for their expensive lifestyles and hobbies and eating habits while apportioning enough of the church budget to hire some chefs who will cook up some material to feed the sheep. What do you mean that you don't have any good ideas for my sermon this week? Well, see if we can buy a 20-minute outline from another church. No, I don't really care if Ed Stetzer has already preached it. In Ezekiel 34, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, 
Ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? It is the job of Christ's shepherds to be in the barn preparing the meals, all of us. There are different giftings among the elders, and whereas one man will often do more of the public feeding, all are called to make sure that the sheep get a balanced diet from Genesis to Revelation, all of the Bible, all of Christ. If a pastor cannot feed his sheep, he is not fit to be a pastor. This is one of the greatest weights, beloved, of being a shepherd. Don't misunderstand me. It is a delight to feed the sheep, but God requires that we feed your souls the food of His Word, which we must handle very carefully. This ought to drive every man of God to the Word of God and every man who desires to be an elder to the Word of God. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Notice those words, among you. Pastors today don't care about their flock as much as they do a platform and a national or even an international ministry and following. Big-time podcasts and YouTube channels with over a million downloads and sound bites that Tucker Carlson quotes on Fox News. The elder has a high office, and that office may afford him opportunities to speak beyond his congregation, but his job is to feed his sheep. The shepherd is to lay down his life for the sheep. The shepherd is also to lay down his life for the sheep. Again, John 10, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus has shown us what it means to be a good shepherd. That is that our life is in an altered state, meaning it is always on the altar, ready to be sacrificed. As pastors, Our safety, our reputations, our comfort, even our lives are forfeit for your sake. They are. In God's providence, there will be times where the wolf gets to the sheep. But that should only happen over the cold, dead body of the sheep's pastor. Lastly, overseers. Peter says, exercising oversight, the Greek word episkopeo, means to look upon or oversee. Now, where did that word bishop come from? In Old English, speakers would often take off the first and last syllables of a word, leaving only the word piscop. And the Saxon prefers softer sounds, which modifies it into bishop. That's where the word bishop comes from. This role is summed up in the words of Proverbs 27, verse 23. In the King James Version, be thou diligent to know the state of thy flocks and look well oversee thy herds. Jesus also said in John 10, I know my own and my own know me. You can likely picture a group of sheep feeding in a pasture and a shepherd walking by each one looking for signs of sickness or hunger or thirst or even injury. This is the job of the overseer. Jared Sparks, a Reformed Baptist pastor in southern Illinois, says that shepherds should smell like sheep. Shepherds ought to smell like sheep. As your shepherds, 
Our job is to know each of you in order to care for you well. We want to know your strengths and your weaknesses, where you need to grow and how you can help others in the flock to grow. We don't do lunches or invite you over to fulfill some sort of pastoral obligation. This is done willingly, as we'll get to in just a minute, and because we want to know you and so also you can know us. Notice what Jesus said. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Let me invite you all into the kitchen for just a minute to see how some of the sausage behind the scenes is made. Your elders meet uh, meet weekly. We usually meet on Tuesday mornings at 7 a.m. We discuss usually the good things that we're seeing in the church and amongst the sheep. We keep a lookout for areas where it seems that members may be struggling. We talk about where we might find another meeting place or possible locations for overseas missions. We're discussing what book of the Bible to preach through next and how we can most effectively argue for the resolution to abolish abortion before the Anderson County Commission. We are texting throughout the week to bounce ideas off of one another and encourage one another. We are pastoring one another. We do this in an effort to know you. Now, for some of you, depending on your church background, overseeing might sound a little like overlording. And that's not our intention at all. A number of you have told me stories about previous churches where members have to have the pastor's permission before they get into a relationship, before they get married, before they get a new job, move to another town or state. Yes, it can be taken too far. At other churches, unfortunately, the opposite error occurs. The pastor is so far removed from his sheep that there is zero oversight. He hires a team of associate pastors to care for the sheep. And if you want to see him, you have to make an appointment way in advance. And what good would that do anyway since he doesn't know you and you don't really know him? Just a brief point of application. There are members who are tempted, even in our church, to keep themselves away from the shepherds, to keep themselves away from their pastors, to keep themselves away from the elders so that they can continue hiding and dwelling sin and not come closer to the holiness of Christ and be healed. Brothers, sisters... If that's you, repent. If there is one temptation that I think our church is likely to fall prey to, it's not letting your elders do the job of overseeing your life and offering you help and healing. I'll make mention. I had a member come to me in the last several weeks and confess a sin in his life that I would have had no idea he was dealing with if he had not shared it with me. How many of you are here today keeping something back that you know God is asking you to get out in the open and confess? Give it up, brothers and sisters. Give it up. Get it rid. Be set free by coming to Christ and drinking again from the crimson stream which justified your soul. Now, Peter is speaking to these elders who function as pastors, who function as overseers. And here's where he puts some parameters, but also encouragements on 
those who will shepherd the flock of God. He says, not this, but this. He gives us three apropos, that's a French word for to the purpose, which define what an elder should and should not do. Let's take each of these briefly in turn. He says first, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. If a man is serving as a pastor because of an outside pressure, he's going to give up. He has to want to do this and sense God's calling for him to do it. The first data point in any man's progress towards the eldership is desire. Paul said, if any man desires the office of overseer, he seeks a noble task. Now this may seem a little strange. Under compulsion? Peter's saying, don't do this under compulsion. Most people in our context, well, yes, I'd love to be a leader. Oh, I get to come to the meetings? Oh, I get to make decisions? Sign me up. But there's our normalcy bias showing again. Where's the persecution? Where's the trial? Where's the getting out in front? Where's the being the example? Where's the being slandered? Where's the being misunderstood? Where's the, this group of sheep start talking about you behind your back and try and split a church and then you put your name out there and you're the one that's defamed and maybe you're the one that's defrocked. All of that, even in our Western context, is still part of shepherding. Who's enemy number one in Peter's churches? The same person that's enemy number one in our church. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Who's he always coming after? He's coming after the leadership. I wonder how many would truly desire the office of elder if they knew that because they took that office, they would be dipped in hot tar and set on fire. Again, just to the purpose, remember our biases. A man who serves in the eldership because he has to or someone's got to do it isn't serving anyone not even himself. This is fundamentally, Peter's saying here, a prohibition against laziness, against lazy pastoring. You can imagine a man who hears a knock at the door but sits in his armchair and does nothing. He hears his wife calling from the other side. She needs help because she's got groceries to bring inside. But if he gets up, all the Dorito powder on this t-shirt will fall to the ground and make a mess. And besides, that's what the kids are for anyway. Well, eventually he gets up after 10 minutes to help her with the groceries. And now he's frustrated at his family. That man is not a shepherd. He's a loser. He's not helping anyone. Sit back down, homeboy, and feed the pig. Brothers, if you want to be an elder one day, you have got to fight the spirit of abdication and laziness right now. You may desire to be an elder, but if you can't get up in time to seek Christ because you're convinced without Christ, I will accomplish nothing today. If you can't take care of your own business because you want to and lead a family and do devotions with your wife and children, if you can't discipline your kids because you want to see them grow in Christ's likeness, but instead you do it in anger because they're really just getting in the way of what you already had planned, if you don't have time to pray for the lost and get slandered for sharing the gospel on the sidewalk, then you can do what women like Beth Moore need to do. 
go home. You're in no way fit for the ministry. A man who can't care for his household won't be able to care for God's church. Some of you young men need to listen up. Oh, I, I'm not even close to the age of elder. This doesn't apply to me. Boys, you can't even keep a clean room. That's an embarrassment to your profession of faith. God keeps an orderly world and so should you. He who is faithful in little will be faithful in much, young men. Start preparing now, not out of compulsion, but willingly. Peter says, secondly, not for shameful gain or dishonest gain, but eagerly. Whereas the last prohibition was against laziness, here Peter turns to another common leadership vice, and that being greed. The Christian pastor cannot do what he does for the sake of increasing his portfolio, which if you think about it is a really bad financial strategy anyway. Here's the deal. You hold as a pastor a position of power and, yes, Satan will tempt you to use it for your own advantage. The men who pastored these churches in the dispersion were likely poor, maybe had lost jobs, Tithe money was probably not always on a high. And they probably had wives and kids to feed. Can you not see how Peter's churches would say, oh, and just cut a corner here, take advantage here. And Peter's prohibition is no, don't. Not for greed. Do it because you are eager. As a remedy, he encourages them to eagerness. Consider how difficult that eagerness would have been when you and your covenant members were being chased and tortured and murdered. In 2009, I lost my teaching job. I taught abstinence in the public schools for 13 years. And I lost that job in 2009, and I was offered a position on a mowing crew at a decent hourly rate. The first day that I showed up to work was August 3rd. That's my birthday. The high was 97, and when I got out of the truck, I was looking up at a 70-foot bank that went around a warehouse and somebody tapped me on the shoulder and handed me a weed eater. Happy birthday, Chris. <laughs> i tell you this, a testimony of the grace of God. I had the biggest smile on my face that day. I've got a job I can provide for my family. Eagerness. I want to do this. I don't care what it costs me. I've got to do this to honor the Lord. I'm so eager to shepherd the sheep. Men, you may look at this office and consider how green the grass is. And I admit, the grass can at times be pretty lush and green. It certainly feels that way right now at Christ the King. But you are the slave of Christ. And even if a local church context, excuse me, even in a local church context, there is a lot of grass to mow. If you aren't eager for the work that Christ will assign you, but hope to get something out of being an elder, like a title or respect, you have, again, no business being an elder. Lastly, Peter says, not domineering or lording over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. This is to the question of the limits of an elder's authority. Peter addresses what may be the most common vice of pastoral ministry in our day, and that is a lust for power. 
The word translated domineering in the ESV comes from the Greek word family kurios, which means Lord. This verb form has to do with having dominion over someone. None of Peter's fellow elders were lords of the flock. They were under shepherds of the great shepherd. And as such, they can only exercise power over the flock as directed by the chief shepherd, Christ. Instead, they were to be examples. The big idea today in the church is that pastors should only be examples. The big idea is that not just pastors, but husbands and bosses and any other person in authority must be what is called a servant leader, which usually just means servant and not a leader. The church, having smoked too much of the world's egalitarian hash, wants to be an emasculated leadership. Lewis sums this up concisely. He says, in a sort of ghastly simplicity, we remove the organ and demand the function. We make men without chests and expect them to have virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and then are shocked when we find traitors in our midst. We castrate and bid the geldings to be fruitful. Christians in our camp, however, that want to recover a biblical view of patriarchy and leadership might be tempted to swing too far the other direction. They become tyrants, the MGTOWs, men who go their own way, the ones that the feminists really hate. Peter has spent the last two and a half verses showing how the elders have to have the right balance, not flexing his apostle status, having suffered for Christ as many of them had, not coveting his position of authority, but looking forward to the glory that they would all share together when Christ is revealed. Can an elder command? Yes. But he is also under the same command. One of the most sobering things about being a pastor I know of is that my words carry so much more weight than I realize. James says, not many should become teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will receive a stricter judgment. That idea alone should bring such severity into the mind of every man who aspires to be an overseer. Men of Christ the King, another point of application. Which kind of man are you? Are you the soft, passive personality that serves but never leads? Repent and ask your brothers here to help you be the man that God is calling you to be. Do you tend to dominate a conversation, brothers, laying heavy burdens on others that you yourself wouldn't dare to lift one finger to assist them with? Repent. Our job as elders is summed up in what Dr. James White says is Christian maturity, true Christian maturity. Dr. White says that it is self-control and balance. It is a life lived on the edge of a razor blade. It is so easy to fall off on one side or the other. Now, we seem to be fighting against the leftist agenda. But as I've heard other pastors say in the past, we will in the next five to ten years be fighting primarily against a swing to the right. We're already seeing some of that right now. Balance. We are to lead, 
but we are to set the example first and go forward before you leading as examples. Well, to conclude, Peter says that they are to run the race and that they are to get the prize. All this begs a single question. Where would one find the strength to be this kind of shepherd? In the midst of this kind of persecution and above money and status and authority, how are Peter's elders going to run this race with joy? Contrary to Creflo Dollar, Peter doesn't promise wealth or health or prosperity or fame or anything valuable in this world. In verse 4, he promises faithful shepherds the greatest reward in the universe, the approval of High King Jesus. The reward on the final day when Christ will be revealed and he offers them the crown of glory. Imagine one of those wreaths made out of leaves that the Greeks and the Romans would have put on the athletes as they came back victorious or even the soldiers as they came back from war. They placed these wreaths on their heads. It's the same Greek word he's using here. And that's why he says this crown will be an unfading one. It'll be one that lasts forever. This will be followed with a public pronouncement of well done, good and faithful servant. Paul said that the aim of one of Christ's shepherd elders is the same aim that the soldier has, to please the one who enlisted him. Let Christ, brothers, be so central in our lives that he becomes our new normalcy bias, the true normalcy bias, that each man in this church, even each woman in this church, is so connected to Christ that those days when there is tragedy and hardship and there are moments that we go without thinking about Christ, we realize I've been abiding in the vine all of this time. There is no other source of life that could compel men to fight what they're fighting here, to fight what we may have to fight in our day, except a connectedness to Christ, except an approval that we are waiting for, that King Jesus would say, well done good and faithful servant. So many pastors today get burnt out. They give up. They start cutting corners. They leave the ministry and the faith. And there are many churches who run them off too. All because they took their eyes off the prize, Jesus. I've heard that there are some cooks in fine restaurants who will take a clam and dip it into boiling water just so they can call it clam chowder. And many of them do fool the customers. Many an elder has fooled many a parishioner by feigning to know much of Christ. But he will not fool the Lord himself on that day when he returns to look on each man's work. The elder can't just take occasional glances. No, we must be looking regularly and enduringly at Jesus. Nothing else will do. If you want to be a pastor... You must now, right now, begin seeking Christ. What else do you have to offer the sheep? We really have nothing else. Jeremy, Daniel, and I, we've got nothing else but Jesus to give you. All of Christ for all of life. Here it is.
And we want to give it to you. So we must be regularly in the Word. We must be regularly before the Lord in prayer, praying for our souls and for your souls and for His blessing on our church. Today, every man in this church can take the first step needed in pursuit of the leadership that God has called him to, whether that's to be an elder or a disciple maker or a husband or a father. In the words of the writer of Hebrews, let that man lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Notice this, and I'll conclude with this. Peter isn't the only one who set the example. Christ came, shepherded faithfully, suffered finally, and is now seated in glory. If you would lead Christ's church, you must walk the same road. He didn't leave us any other to follow. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of pastoral leadership. I thank you for that gift in my life. We thank you for that gift over Christ the King Church. We pray that in America there would be a true revival of the acknowledgement of the office of elder, men who shepherd and keep oversight over your flock, who have authority and yet themselves are under that authority, who care for the bride of Christ, feeding her as the needs arise on a weekly basis, regularly from the Word of God, that she might be adorned in splendor and in glory without spot or blemish or wrinkle or any such thing. Jesus, we know that our names are written in your book already under those descriptors. So please be with us now as we as a church and Jeremy and Daniel and myself as elders endeavor to shepherd this flock that they might be sanctified as they are justified. And together, one day, we all look forward to sharing that great meal when we are all glorified. We know that your word has already promised us we will be. We thank you. And it is in hope of that that we look forward to the work that you have for us even tomorrow. And bless that work, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.